the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. And this week, we are talking about deconstruction. Before that, let's get our drink orders and rants and raves in. I'll go first. I'm going to have my winter standby, a Manhattan. I would like that with rye, please. And I am raving about the Apple Plus TV series, The Last of Us. This has been coming up on a lot of lists about best TV in 2023 and so on. And normally I reject those kinds of things, but I started watching it and it is an amazing show. It's a post-apocalyptic quasi-zombie film, but it's really just about the relationships that people form in this wasteland world. And there's a young woman who is an actor in it, and she is amazing. So The Last of Us, I'm raving about that. What about you, Lee? I am going to just have two fingers of Buffalo Trace neat today. And I know you guys both know that I'm a big fan of internet slang. (laughs) And so I am today raving about a new internet slang term that I've just discovered, Schrodinger's asshole. So obviously this is a reference to the famous Schrodinger's cat who is in a box and who is neither dead nor alive until somebody opens the box and observes the cat. And Schrodinger's asshole, and by the way, it goes by other names on the internet, including Schrodinger's DB. If you know what that is, you know what that is. But it's about what you would imagine. You know, you talk to people, they'll tell a joke, it's a sexist joke, and nobody laughs, and you sort of don't really know until they laugh or they say, I'm kidding, whether or not they're being Mm. an asshole. So yeah, this is a perfectly described term for a really annoying part of our lives. So thank you, internet, once again, for the (laughs) slang term to name something that desperately needed a name. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? So I'm going to have a hot sake, a favorite winter drink. And since we kind of did Cowboys and Samurais last show, I did the Cowboy drink last week. I figured I'd do the Samurai drink this week. I am going to rave about Kino Nick. This is all very local. I apologize for that. Kino Nick is a local collective that screens films on film. (laughs) They have a little space. It's been around for a bit. I went for the first time recently to see The Great Dictator. You go into this room and it is wall-to-wall canisters of film. Mm. They have like 1,500 old classic films that's from an old USM film professor's collection. Wow. And plus, you know... I don't get too much into this, but Portland's gotten very gentrified in recent years, and I thought the day of finding out about a cool little arty thing that's interesting was long past. Now I find out about overpriced restaurants that I can only afford to go once a year opening (laughs) up in Portland, and I'm so glad to learn that there's a space that screens films down by the docks here in Portland. So we're talking about deconstruction. 
What are we talking about? I think it could be argued that there are very few philosophies that are blamed for so much as deconstruction. (laughs) Introduced by Jacques Derrida in the late 60s, deconstruction rose to popularity in the late 70s and 80s, fought a real battle to be accepted as something other than a fad in the early 90s, and really built up steam in the late 90s after having been adopted by other humanities disciplines as a method of analysis and exposition. However, by the end of the 21st century aughts, deconstruction was already being edged out of favor by many of its critics and some of its heirs. Today, in 2024, deconstruction has been refigured and disfigured so dramatically that it has become a chimera. One of its faces is reductive and banal, but mostly harmless, as seen in so-called deconstructed fashion or deconstructed dishes on reality TV. (laughs) The other face, though, is hyperbolically menacing, distorting reality, poisoning discourse, undermining traditional values, and sneakily turning all of us into nonsense babbling relativists. That's a pretty meteoric rise and fall for only a half century. (laughs) Derrida once said, quote, monsters cannot be announced. One cannot say here are our monsters without immediately turning the monsters into pets. So today we thought it might be worthwhile to try to turn this monster of deconstruction into a little bit of a pet (laughs) to dig into what deconstruction really is and isn't in the hopes of getting some clarity on this infamously obscurantist philosophy. After all, the devil you know may not be a devil at all. We often start some of our shows with the what is question, although I realize when it comes to what is deconstruction, (laughs) you have a real conflict between the sort of platonic demand to give the essence of the thing and the Derridian evasion of exactly what that is. So do you want to reconcile, square that circle for us, Lee? Answer what is, but also, in some sense, defer what is? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or what it is under erasure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I'm going to take Rick's tack here and say what it's not. (laughs) So Derrida was largely responding to structuralism when he first started articulating deconstruction. And his critique of structuralism really involves a questioning of the stability hierarchy and transparency of language and meaning. So he basically challenges the foundational assumptions of structuralist thought, opening up new avenues for understanding the complexities and indeterminacies that are inherent to not only linguistic, but also cultural systems. So maybe a couple of things would be helpful in both explaining what deconstruction is not and also getting some kind of key terms that we're going to need out there. So I just wanted to note a few things about Derrida's critique of structuralism in summary. One thing that he critiqued was structuralism's focus on what he called logocentrism, the privileging of speech over writing. So he challenges this hierarchy and argues that both speech and writing are equally subject to the play of language. So that's one thing. 
Second thing is that he critiques structuralism's reliance on binary oppositions. So things like not only speech and writing, but presence and absence, and the way that these binary oppositions structure meaning. Derrida's ultimately going to argue that binary oppositions are not stable or fixed, but are interconnected and mutually dependent. Third thing is that he critiques structuralism for neglecting the role of absence in the production of meaning. This is where we're going to get Derrida's term difference, which captures the dual nature of difference and deferral. That's more complicated. We'll have to explain more of that later. And then finally, Derrida criticizes structuralism for always seeking stability or closure to organize meaning. So that's what it's not. <laughs> is, that, is, is that helpful? So just before we go on, maybe we could just say a bit about structuralism. The two main disciplines in which structuralism held sway was language or linguistics and in anthropology. So Ferdinand de Soissure in language and Claude Lévi-Strauss in anthropology. And the basic gist of structuralism is that if you're going to look at an element of language or of a culture, in order to understand how that element functions, operates, what its meaning is, and so on, you can't look at it in isolation from other elements because all the elements together form a structure. So the meaning of terms emerges not just by the individual sounds or words, but in the entire structure that is language, and this needs to be attended to. And so Derrida's responding to this logical construction of these structures in which to understand the individual elements of a culture, of a language. There was also structuralist history and so on. Yeah, that's really helpful. I suppose another thing probably important just to make clear right here at the outset is that although deconstruction is frequently referred to as a philosophy, it is as much a method of reading as it is anything else. And this is why Derrida will frequently say that texts auto-deconstruct or systems auto-deconstruct. Deconstruction is not something that you do to a text, even less so what you do to a garment or a, <laughs> a meal, but it's something that happens as a part of the play of signs and meanings operative in any system. What I found breathtaking about Derrida the first time I read him as a baby philosopher was his pointing out the way in which the texts of philosophers throughout the history of philosophy rely on a distinction that they think is obvious between two opposing terms. Mm -hmm. So I think about Aristotle's substance and accident. Mm -hmm. Substance is not accident, and accident is not substance, and so there seems to be an opposition here. And yet Derrida would show how you cannot define one without the other. Accident relies on substance and substance relies on accident. And so this structure of this opposition crumbles on the analysis that Derrida might bring to a text like this. And I just found this an incredibly insightful way to read philosophical texts and to take them seriously as texts. Yeah. And just to try to put this more in the vernacular, I think we all implicitly understand, or maybe it has to be pointed out to us, but we know that when we read any text, and we're going to talk later about the fact that for Derrida, a text is not just a book, <laughs> but when we read any text, 
we know that there have to have been things left out. Right. And so we frequently ignore the absences, the margins, right? Like literally when you read a page of text, you don't read the margins because they're blank, because that's where the things that have been left out have been erased. And this text itself cannot operate without those margins. It cannot make sense without things having been left out, things having been erased, without leaving, as Derrida will sometimes say, traces and remainders. Again, that's not something that you're doing to the text. That's just the way that texts operate. And so when we try to look for what's left out, look for what's erased, look for traces or remainders of things not present in the text, that is what we might call the auto-deconstructive nature of any system of Mm -hmm. meaning. Mm -hmm. It's there. It's a method to look for it and to try to draw it out. But it's not something you're doing to the text. It's something that the text is already doing. When I think about Derrida, you know, one of the things that I always think of is Plato's dialogue, The Phaedrus, mm-hmm. in which Socrates famously says the problem with writing is that once the text is written, it's a dead letter. It can't speak for itself. It's going to open itself up to different interpretations. And this juxtaposition, or this opposition, really, between the presence of speaking and the absence in writing and of course, Derrida's point on one level is that having a dialogue, having a discussion, the sort of supposed living presence of engaging with someone does not ward off all the things you're worried about when you're worried about writing. There mm-hmm. still is the possibility of words undermining or circumventing some of one's points that to write is to always engage with a certain kind of errancy with respect to what one intends. And that errancy is integral not just to writing, although it is in writing that we often try to ward it off historically in philosophy, but it's present in every act of communication. There's a fundamental miscommunication Mm. at work there. You know, that sort of Derridian phrase that the conditions of possibility are also the conditions of impossibility. The very fact that I'm using language and that language has multiple meanings means that there's always the possibility of those meanings going awry, right? As you said, Lee, and I think it's an important point, texts deconstruct themselves. Derrida isn't disproving or arguing against when he engages in this kind of reading. He's trying to show how what we take to be as Rick was saying about like substance versus accident, we take to be the philosophical lessons of a text is actually undermined by its very articulation. Mm. What you're pointing out, Jason, has really profound implications in at least two directions. One direction is when you say that language can always go awry, that very fact means that it becomes almost impossible to ever decide what the straightforward or literal or unerring use of language is and what's the error. That is, error is shot all the way through this. We can't rely on any base notion of, no, this is just straightforward language. It's not a metaphor. It's not a simile. You know, it's just straightforward language. And the second one is that this kind of dialogue and the preference that Derrida sees in Plato and other philosophers for speech over writing in many ways becomes a model for how I think we intuitively and philosophy historically has thought about the self or subjectivity, namely that when I think about myself, I kind of think about my conversations I have with myself in my own head, and I think about myself in terms of speech rather than in terms of writing. 
And if that distinction is unstable, then myself is unstable, subjectivity is unstable, and that is a profound implication from what at first seems to be a merely literary point. Yeah, I think both of these examples are really helpful in demonstrating what Derrida calls this difference and deferral that is always operative. So, for example, if I were to say, what's the difference between night and day? Right. Presumably, first, you would give me an answer that defined those two terms in opposition to one another. Mm. And you would assume that in doing so, the articulation of that difference made present the meaning of those two terms. That difference is always at the same time deferred. Mm. I mean, tomorrow we could, for example, just simply switch the Mm. terms like day and night, right? And that would make the full presence of the answer that you gave me the day before or the night before. This is getting weird, (laughs) but you understand. (laughs) That would make it incorrect, absent, Mm. in fact. It's not as if in speech that our thoughts are made fully present in the phonemes that we associate with those thoughts. Nor is it obviously the case that when we think something that those thoughts are made fully present in our written word, because we know, of course, somebody can pick it up and misunderstand it. It can be taken out of context, et cetera, et cetera. So the presence of the meaning is always determined or, you know, left undetermined not only by the play of difference between that meaning and the meanings to which it is opposed, but also the deferral of the full presence of the meaning as it is operated in the play of communication, of cultures, of texts, of conversations, et cetera, et cetera. I hope that wasn't too convoluted. Did that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, because I think your discussion of margins in a text is telling here, and I think it's why Derrida uses it at a certain stage in his career quite often. Because if you think about the relationship between the margin and the text on the printed page, the text wouldn't appear to me as a text if it were running off the sides of the pages. That is, the text wouldn't be contained and therefore it wouldn't be a text. And so the margins, which we normally think are not part of the text, are actually what makes the text a text in the first place. Mm -hmm. And yet it doesn't appear as such as text. And so you have this really complicated structure that I think deconstruction is a strategy for trying to tease apart and come to understand how this structure helps a text operate or maybe just is its mode of operation. I think that's a really good way to say it. And this gets back to what Jason was saying earlier. The condition for the possibility of the meaning being fully present is that it's impossible for the meaning to be fully present. Yeah. And this, I think, is related to what we've been calling errancy, the always possible error that constitutes language. Because If the full meaning of any word were always fully present, that would mean the word in all of its meanings, which, of course, is impossible, right? Because when I'm using a word, both I and the one who's reading or hearing the word can't operate with the fullness of the meaning of that word. And so the meaning that I come to take up is actually based on all of those meanings I don't take up, that is, the ones I push off, the ones that, in fact, I defer.
Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. So following Derrida, I'm going to continue down my one-trick pony path here and continue talking about what deconstruction is not. And now I want to really focus on some of the ways that I think deconstruction is popularly misunderstood. And I'll just start with the most obvious one, which I mentioned in the intro, which is that deconstruction is not destruction. You know, so if I take a jacket and rip it apart, that is not a deconstructed jacket. <laughs> if I take a Caesar salad and put all of the ingredients of it in different parts of the plate in a different order, that is not a deconstruction of a salad. I mean, maybe it is, but like, I mean, we have to make a distinction between deconstructing something, which again, is not something that one does to a text. And destroying something, destruction of something. I think in a strange way, looking at the trend toward deconstructed dishes that I see on the Food Network all the time and so on. By the way, often chefs, if their dish didn't turn out the way they wanted, then they call it deconstructed. (laughs) But I think that shows something that in a sense, if I go with your Caesar salad example – When all of the elements are composed together, that is, maybe we could say structured to make the Caesar salad, I don't necessarily know what role each of the elements are playing. Is the flavor of the crouton coming from the crouton or from the dressing? What does the lettuce taste like without the dressing? So if I deconstruct it, that is, pull it apart into its elements, then I can taste each of the elements on their own and thereby see something about why it is the salad is structured and the way it is structured. I don't necessarily destroy the salad, but I do take apart its structure in order to understand how the structure functions. But would you say that if you were given a dish that had all of the elements of a Caesar salad separated into different parts on the dish... Would you look down at that dish and say, a Caesar salad is present? No. And okay. <laughs> can I just also say that I freaking hate deconstructed dishes because I feel like they're making me do the work that they should have done when they cooked it. Like a deconstructed sandwich. I'm just going to put it back together. So why couldn't you have given it to me put together? I mean, that's not a terrible example, right? Because if I you know, reach into my pantry and grab a loaf of bread and then reach into my refrigerator and grab some ham and some cheese and some mustard and lay it all out on my counter, I wouldn't say that's a deconstructed sandwich. I would say that's the ingredient. It's a pre-constructed sandwich. You know what I'm saying? But Right. It's an unconstructed. 
yeah. sandwich. Like when I go into the grocery store, I don't say like, here are sandwiches and Caesar salads. <laughs> I feel like in order to be true to deconstruction, a deconstructed salad would have to do the impossible. You have to both be able to eat the salad and taste the crouton soaked with dressing and also see the crouton and the dressing separate, right? Mm -hmm. That in some sense, you can't really deconstruct a salad in the way the term suggests because you both have to deal with the articulation of all the elements together and seeing and pulling apart their differences at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. You can't eat both a deconstructed salad and a salad at once. I do want to you know, try to take up the side of the chefs here, because I think that it could be argued that, in fact, you are weirdly tasting the Caesar salad in the absence of the Caesar salad in a deconstructed Caesar salad dish. Mm. And in that sense, I can understand why a chef might say this is a deconstructed dish. I think for me, the kind of ticky tack point is that like as a chef, I couldn't say I'm presenting you a deconstructed dish. It would have to be something more like the salad is is you know de auto deconstructed, which is which is kind of I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm siding more with the chefs, but I would definitely say that in fashion, at least the way that I've seen it, which is really just a kind of tatter something up mm. is a better example of the mistake that I was trying to point out of mm. confusing deconstruction with destruction. Yeah, I think that's right. Like I cut holes in the slacks and all of a sudden they're deconstructed pants. Right, correct. I mean, to me, that brings us to the question that we started out with. You know, we spent a couple minutes talking about what deconstruction really is. And we started the show talking about the various monstrous distortions, but it seems to me to be very un-Derrida. I say that like undude from the Big Lebowski, <laughs> but very un-Derrida to believe that the distortions and the thing are two radically different things. Yeah. And mm. we can just say those people are all wrong. Mm. You know, I'm reminded of one of my favorite texts of Derrida's is the text on J.L. Austin and how to do things with words. Right. And J.L. Austin makes this little aside. He's like, look, you know, there are times when people are saying things and they're not really intending for the full elocutionary effect when you say I'm speaking on a stage or in a poem or whatever, you know, if you say, I now pronounce you man and wife on the stage. And Derrida's response to that is to say, you can't separate out the exceptional or deviant from the normal. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that to be faithful to that gesture, we have to say that all the perforations of the deconstructed jackets and salads out there, uh, not to mention the more important things, the sort of argument that deconstruction is tantamount to nihilism and the destruction of reason itself, these things have to, in some sense, be taken seriously you know, The deviant meanings have to be taken seriously as part of the actual true meaning. At the same time. And maybe for our non-philosophy listeners, it would be important to point out that Lee was not exaggerating when she introduced this topic by saying there has been such tremendous reaction to deconstruction to the point where philosophers at Yale University, when they found out Derrida was invited to speak there, tried to get the State Department not to issue him a visa to come <laughs> into the country. I mean, there was such vitriol and animosity heaped on deconstruction. 80s, I think, was the heyday of heaping on deconstruction. And so we're not exaggerating when we say that people saw this as a real threat 
They talked about it almost the way in which Trump talks about immigrants on the border. Hordes of deconstructionists. Yeah, the hordes of deconstructionists <laughs> invading our country. Yeah. And I mean, that animosity continues today and has really been reignited in the last I would say, decade or two by the crisis in higher education. And for the reasons that Jason just mentioned, namely that deconstruction is forwarded as the cause of widespread nihilism or relativism. And Jason's exactly right. Derrida never advocates for absolute relativism or nihilism, that all interpretations are equally valid or that nothing has any inherent meaning. He's just emphasizing that meaning is always context dependent. So that means there are always multiple interpretations, right? Anything that is contextualized can be decontextualized and recontextualized. And what deconstruction as a mode of analysis seeks to unveil is really just the complexity of meaning, not to dismiss it altogether. In fact, for Derrida to say that I am a relativist or I am a nihilist would be antithetical to the very strategy of deconstruction mm -hmm. itself. Exactly. As if relativism is not a term that auto-deconstructs or nihilism isn't a term that auto-deconstructs. And so the people who accuse him of this are obviously not patient readers, let's say, of his text. Right. And the same goes with the claim that deconstruction is anti-reason. Right. Derrida's critique of logocentrism is not, absolutely not, an outright rejection of reason or logic. It's just a challenging of the traditional hierarchies that are operative in our systems of meaning. I have a funny story about this, which is that when I was in grad school, I took a class that was on Derrida and a couple of other contemporary figures, and we read of grammatology, which is a notoriously difficult text, mm. but also, you know, in my view, like one of the most brilliant texts written in the latter half of the 20th century. And I remember the professor for this course basically saying that there was no argument in the text. And his or her support for this was that because Derrida is against logocentrism and because language is always at play, both of which are true, but that is not to say that there isn't an argument in the text. And every time I kept trying to say, well, no, actually, he is making arguments here, I was met with the accusation that I'm too attached to the metaphysics of presence. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so finally, I was like, look, I can tell you the argument of this text. Just give me two and a half minutes. There is an argument here. Well, also, Derrida's critique of logocentrism might open different ways of making an argument. Mm -hmm. Like, if you think about how logic works in an informal way when philosophers write philosophical texts and make an argument about, you know, what knowledge is or what reality is, there has to be some foundation. And that foundation has to be something like self-evident. And from that self-evident foundation, then by applying some rules, you can derive further statements and ultimately reach your conclusion. Now, if what we've been saying is attended to, namely that meaning is inherently unstable and multiple and context-dependent and so on, then we're never going to reach a first self-evident truth because self-evidence in such context is impossible. By the way, everything I just said was an argument. 
Yeah, right. right? <laughs> but it might not be one that's based on a fundamental truth that I say is self-evident to me and applying certain rules of inference and so on. Right. And again, just returning to a note that we made before, that's because meaning is always both differentiated and deferred. Derrida has a term for this, difference. It's difference with an A and an accent mark, which in French is, of course, pronounced exactly the same way as difference, difference, which is something that Derrida plays on. Also, second funny story about this. So I can't remember who told me the story. I think it was Jack Caputo, that there was a celebratory dinner with Derrida and some of his colleagues when the word difference was first included into the French dictionaries. Mm. And Derrida's mother was apparently present at this <laughs> dinner. And someone made a toast that was like, and congratulations for difference with an A finally being included in the French dictionary. And apparently his mother was just shocked and thought it was just a misspelling <laughs> and embarrassed. It's not a misspelling. <laughs> By the way, I have a Derrida story that is a complete non sequitur, but he once spoke at Penn State when I was on the faculty there. We had dinner afterwards, a group of faculty, and at one point, one of my colleagues said, you know, Rick, I bet Derrida would like to smoke, so if you're going to go out and smoke, why don't you let him know? And so I went over and, you know, I said, hey, I'm going out to smoke. Would you like to join me? I had never met the man before, so we're standing there mostly silent, and then he says to me, I don't really smoke smoke that much. I only smoke when I'm writing. Hmm. And I looked at him and I said, well, then you're smoking all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he looked puzzled and he's like, yeah, I suppose I do smoke a lot. <laughs> For our attentive listeners, you might realize at this point that we actually have talked about deconstruction in the past, although not directly. We had a conversation with Michael Nass about hospitality that was entirely about a text of Jacques Derrida's. And in a couple of other places, Lee has brought the strategy of deconstruction to bear on various topics. What's interesting about the way it's come up in this podcast, though, is that we've never really discussed it in relation to text, and yet, you know, we've spent by now several dozens of minutes talking just about deconstruction as a method of reading. And so I'm wondering, how do we get from deconstruction as a strategy of reading to the deconstruction of things or concepts like hospitality or friendship or democracy. Many of these come up in Derrida's later work. Has there been a change in his thinking about deconstruction? Has the strategy shift? Or is there a way that this is continuing the same strategy? It does seem to me that there was a shift in the 90s. I mean, I'm thinking about the lecture that Derrida gave on the mystical foundation of authority, deconstruction, the possibility of justice. And then, of course, the book, Specters of Marx, which came out, and this sort of political turn. And as you were saying, Rick, even though there's a political turn there, it's hard to even call it a turn because part of what he's doing with all these texts is, as we did in the episode on forgiveness, the episode on hospitality, there's a relation between 
two different senses of a term, right? Democracy, for example, is both a kind of ideal, like, you know, everyone participates, everyone speaks, but democracy is often always a delimited form, restricted to a particular group of people in a particular region. And in some sense, the restricted version needs the expanded version, and the expanded version needs the restricted version in order for them to function. Mm. And I do think it's interesting to say this in light of what we're talking about right before the break, about this nihilistic critique. Suddenly, Derrida very much wanted to speak about the political and ethical implications. Even in that lecture about law, he says – the guy could really troll sometimes. Uh-huh. <laughs> he says deconstruction is justice, right. which you know I always imagine that in the form of an old school 1930s legal thriller where reporters all rush to the back of the room and grab the phones <laughs> yeah. and like get up. He said deconstruction is justice. Hold He's the like, presses. you can't handle uh, the truth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so this bringing manifest of the ethical and political convictions that Derrida thought would have been at work all along was a big part of the latter period of Derrida, at least as far as I see it. I'm not really, I mean, I don't engage with Derrida as much as some people, but that shift seemed noticeable following at least some of his texts. Derrida has a lot of statements, deconstruction is dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And so deconstruction is justice, deconstruction is democracy, deconstruction is friendship. So there are a lot of those, which I think says something important about the strategy of deconstruction itself. Yeah, I agree with you, Jason, that this was not a turn to political and ethical philosophy in his later years. I think people just weren't getting him. (laughs) They just weren't Mm. getting it. And I think that at some point he's like, all right, let me draw it out for you. Mm. All the stuff that he does with concepts that you guys have been talking about, friendship, democracy, hospitality, forgiveness, in the latter part of his career, all of those arguments were there in of grammatology. They were there in margins of philosophy. They were there in writing of difference, the very, very early texts. He just is applying, again, the strategy of or the method of deconstruction to different sorts of contexts. I also think that there were world events that really convinced him that it was necessary to do this. I think, for example, the ending of apartheid in 1991 was one of those. I think that after 9-11, what sometimes now gets called the state of exception, the imposition of non-democratic principles in the name of democracy, non-democratic practices in the name of democracy, really motivated him that this was an important thing to point out. I think many of the immigration crises that we saw, including the production of a massive amount of stateless people in the last two decades of his life made it really important for him to talk about some of these things. So this is not and never was an apolitical philosophy. But I think Derrida would say that's because no system of meaning is apolitical. Mm, Right. But let me say it in this way, because any system of meaning that involves human agents requires decisions. And the very active decision is both a moral and political act. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with that. If meaning is always multiple, so it's differential and deferred, wherever there is something like meaning, then a decision has been made. Mm -hmm. Maybe more than one decision, a decision on the part of the speaker or writer and a decision on the part of the reader or listener in order for meaning to appear, at least for a moment, to be stable. 
I think, Lee, you really opened my eyes to the reason why the question of decision and decidability becomes an important term for him in many of these works that we've been talking about as his later works, where he talks about these ethical and political questions or systems, I think systems of meaning is a better one. You know, for example, you mentioned his response to the response to 9-11. He writes this book called Rogues, talking about, in part, the designation that the U.S. made of certain states as, quote unquote, rogue states. Mm -hmm. So he offers a deconstruction of the notion of rogue, which opens the question, who are the rogues and how do you decide, no, they're the rogues, we're not. (laughs) Right, right. Which is, again, a repetition of an argument that he made in The Politics of Friendship, where he famously takes up this line, friends, there are no friends. Earlier, when he was talking about Uh, I mean, so many people, you know, he's made this a similar structural argument when he's talked about Kant, when he's talked about Rousseau, when he's talked about Descartes. So I don't think any of this was a turn. I think it was like what we might call an explication. I'm not even sure that it wasn't explicit in the beginning. (laughs) And it is also interesting that in many of these works, and so you just mentioned friendship, that he centers it around In fact, a text or sometimes multiple texts Mm -hmm. within the history of philosophy, sometimes poems. So the German poet Paul Salon was one he returned to over and over again. And he performs a deconstruction of something like, let's say, friendship through a deconstruction of texts about friendship. Right. Yeah. We can't let this episode go by without addressing one of the most famous things that Derrida ever said, which is that there's nothing outside of the text. Yeah, and explain just, that to us, Lee. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to point out that throughout this episode, we've been referring to texts as systems of meaning. And I think that's really what he means by texts. And so, again, a text is not necessarily a written book. A text could be a culture, a text could be a nation state, a text could be a community practice. I mean, there are so many different things that count as texts. The important thing is that text is the name for a system of meaning. And There is nothing outside of that, at least for the kinds of beings that we are, right? There is nothing that is outside of a system of meaning. If it were, we would not know it, right? I mean, just to sort of state the obvious, or we would not recognize it as such. So this is maybe one of the earlier, late 80s, 90s kind of misunderstandings of deconstruction is that Derrida thinks everything is a text, meaning a written book. And that is, of course not the case. And that's why I believe for him, it was so easy to make what people call a turn to these more explicitly moral and political questions at the end. But it wasn't a turn because texts were there all along and those systems are also texts. Here at the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, 
and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App, and you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. I was hoping to ask both of you guys what you think Derrida would have said had he lived just a couple of decades longer. I mean, I would love for Derrida to have been able to see social media. I would love for him to have been able to see chat GPT. I just think that both of these things would have brought to the fore criticisms that a lot of people have made about deconstruction all along, implicitly that it relies on a kind of human agency, but that Derrida never really takes up. I mean, he does somewhat in his lectures on the animal, but you know, I would have been interested to see him take that up, take up the non-human in the sense of technology or the natural environment, which is really how it's operative in discussions today. So I have two thoughts, one affirming Derrida and another that will be somewhat critical. We've talked a lot on this podcast about non-human forms of, for lack of a better term, intelligence. So we've talked about robots. We've talked about AI. And Lee, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you and I share a similar position in that one of the concerns that's expressed about chat GPT, I think, is that it shows how much our own consciousness intelligence is algorithmic, trained on models, just like a large language model and a GPT system is trained, and that makes us uneasy. And so the existence of chat GPT calls into question those things we think are most quintessentially human. That is, in a strange way, AI auto-deconstructs the human as such, Mm. or poses the threat, that's a better way to put it, poses the threat of deconstructing the human as such. Yeah, I think that Derrida, even when he was alive, would have stipulated that the human is an auto-deconstructing concept, an autoimmune concept. I think the way that we think about AI right now or the way that we think about the climate or even the way that we think about global politics where the nation state is no longer the primary actor, where we have so many non-state actors, I think all of those things would have really just even more so legitimated the insights of deconstruction as a strategy. And I think maybe some of them would have been difficult for Derrida to swallow because I do still believe that in his heart of hearts, he was, you know, a closet <laughs> humanist, like a closet Kantian, a closet Sartrean. So many closets. <laughs> That's only half the number of closets I have. <laughs> just, just add those to the margins and erasures. <laughs> but at any rate, I would have loved for him to have seen these things come to pass. I find much of Derrida's latest work that is right before his death, if you told me what the subject matter of it was 
friendship, democracy, whatever. I feel like I could have written those books. Mm. That is, there was a certain algorithmic feeling, I think, to some of his later works. And you think that's a criticism? Well, I think people might think that I'm being nasty, right? Mm. So what are you saying? He's not a good writer or whatever. No, he's a beautiful writer. But I do think that his later work sometimes shows that deconstruction comes very close to an algorithm. Mm -hmm. What I was going to say is, on the one hand, as we said Okay, there I I said hands. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with Derry, that's okay as long as there are like seven or eight hands. (laughs) But we said the thing about there's nothing outside the text. I think that formulation gives us a way to make sense of some of the philosophical trends that came post-Derrida, which were all attempts to get outside the textual or conceptual to the quote-unquote things themselves, Mm -hmm. object-oriented ontology, speculative realism, etc., all an attempt to say something other than simply the interplay of text. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that's interesting is because there has been a huge reaction, and it's not just Derrida they're reacting to, but a general sense of we're always engaging the world in and through our concepts, interpretations, etc. that they would trace back to Kant or whoever the case may be. And that definitely happened. But I think at the same time, and here's the controversial point I want to say, I don't think we're ever going to get a Derrida revival. Mm. Mm. I say this because, you know, if you follow enough philosophy, you know that people are always going in and out of the what's hot and what's not columns, and you get these returns. But I feel like the issue with Derrida is so much of his insights around the practice of reading have become imminent to philosophical practices in general and are not necessarily dependent on a revival of Derrida. I was listening to a lecture that Balibar gave in the fall at Columbia about Marx's theory of cooperation, and he referred to Derrida as one of his masters, which I thought was quite interesting. And he said, the thing I learned from my master Derrida is that philosophers write. Philosophers think with concepts, and when they write, those concepts are both articulated and pushed to their own points of tension. Mm. And the way he just sort of said that made me think, yeah, this is Derrida's legacy. The recognition of what reading is as a practice, what writing is as a practice, has kind of been disseminated, to use that during term, throughout multiple different practices of reading and writing that all in some sense can be traced back to Derrida. But I think because of that imminence and that proliferation, I can't really imagine there ever quite being this feeling like, oh, we've marginalized this guy for too long. We got to get back into this because I think we find that to some extent, even people who don't say, as Balibar did in that lecture, that Derrida is their master, will find themselves reading in a way that has been shaped by Derrida. Hmm. I completely agree with you, Jason. I think Derrida would be happy to hear that too. Yeah. I heard from several people who knew him that he was always a little dismayed at people who were working on his philosophy because he thought that they should be working on philosophy and, you know, not him. I think that to a certain extent shows what you're pointing out, Jason, that what he's trying to offer is something that can be taken up and put to work without us 
having to keep going back to the texts themselves and argue about this or that aspect of it, much in the way I think of phenomenology being something that we shouldn't be going back to Husserl's text and arguing about passive synthesis and so on. <laughs> it should be something that we do, that we do phenomenologies of things, mm-hmm. and that somehow arguing about the finer points of the sacred scriptures sort of misses the point of both deconstruction as a strategy and I think phenomenology as a philosophical practice. Yeah, I'm now struck by how ironic it is to say that about Derrida, because the formulation I'm coming close to is this idea of, you know, taking something as read. Like, we've established Mm. this, that all texts sort of deconstruct themselves. It seems very bizarre to think (laughs) that Derrida would become just a point taken as read and not a practice of reading. Yeah, stipulated. It is interesting, even though I said that he's not coming back. I mean, he's not coming back for real. Um, there's nothing messianic here. Oh, I cried a real human tear. But it is striking, given that he was so attentive to the practices of writing. I feel like we're in a more written society than we were. I mean, the proliferation of, as you were saying, Lee, like social media means we are constantly writing ourselves mm. and the proliferation of text within text within texts. I'm thinking here about the way in which texts become quotes, quotes become memes, memes become subverted into other memes. Like I watch things deconstruct themselves in a matter of minutes, Mm -hmm. not a matter of generations all the time Mm -hmm. now. But one of Derrida's students, Bernard Stiegler, I mean, his argument was in some sense that we are leaving a society of writing Mm. and to a society of images. And what happens to that play of interpretation and meaning when we're confronted not with a text but with an image? Mm. Is it a new kind of thinking? Do we need a new grammatology when the traces are not textual but visual? Mm. I mean, in some sense, it turned to the early Derrida, which had this positivistic strain to it. Like he was going to give a theory of writing as a cross-disciplinary idea. Do we need to turn back and ask the question not of what would Derrida say about this, but what does it mean to live in a society that's, on the one hand, proliferation of writing, but also post-writing at the same time? Mm-hmm. Up until this point, we've been unpacking central aspects of Derrida's deconstruction, the main concepts that he operates with as tools in this deconstruction, and speaking, I think, mostly positively or affirmatively about him. I just want to go on record as saying, I am not a Derridian and I am not a deconstructionist. I have learned a lot from Derrida. Early on, again, when I was a baby philosopher, I think he had a tremendous impact on me. And maybe it's because I loved him so deeply that when I turned away from him, I turned violently away from him. I will also say that while I think on the one hand, this text Jason mentioned, Spectres of Marx, is a beautifully written text. It is an incredibly destructive reading of Marx for the needs of today. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's said enough. I find that text to be very difficult to read because of that. So I am a fan of Derrida, as Jason said, for all the things that we just take as oh yeah, that's just philosophy, but I myself am no longer a card-carrying deconstructionist. Well, as a card-carrying deconstructionist, (laughs) (laughs) of course, you know, I'm saying that in a qualified sense. I mean, I don't think that deconstruction is something that you do 
I think it's a method of, in some ways, just observing the ways that things ought to deconstruct and trying mm. to find new meanings or, in my particular case, new possibilities in that auto deconstruction. One thing I do want to say is I do think that there are a lot of heirs of deconstruction that don't refer to Derrida as their masters for obvious reasons. And I think that many of those heirs of deconstruction are some of the most exciting things that's happened in philosophy in the last 30 years. And I'm thinking here of post-colonial studies, decolonial studies, queer studies, obviously feminist studies, even some race theory. I just think that there's so many things that maybe Jason's right, that sort of just take deconstruction as a given and oppose it as a master discourse, which is an interesting development. Mm. But they're exciting, and I'm glad to see them. I think we've made a lot of progress because of that. So I think that his legacy is practically undeniable. I mean, yeah. even the legacy of vitriolic opposition to him as being obscurantist, which I don't think he is, as being relativist, which he definitely is not, or as being anti-reason or anti-philosophy, which also not true. So it's pretty amazing when you think about the relatively kind of short reign that deconstruction had, that it's had such an impact and that it has such a legacy. And even if it isn't ever revived in the name Jacques Derrida, I'm not sure it's going to die either for many of the reasons that both of you pointed out. But you guys, we have been given last call. And so we have to roll out of here because, I mean, come on, there's nothing that bar folk want to hear less than three philosophers prattle on about <laughs> deconstruction I, after a few drinks. I tried to deconstruct closing time with the bartender, but she's having none of it. Yeah. <laughs> So we will catch you guys next time. And thanks for listening, everybody. Good night. Bye. Bye.